This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we uh, try to tackle your most difficult maintenance questions, and uh, sometimes we actually come up with answers to them. <laughs> so if you have a question, uh, and we wouldn't have this show without them, uh, please uh, email it to uh, podcasts at aopa.org, and uh, we'll get you scheduled to uh, to appear on the show. And if you like the show, good answers and bad, uh, please follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list, our monthly uh, newsletter and other interesting things, uh, the easiest way to do that is to pick up your smartphone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little um, email bot will ask you for your name and email address and put you on our list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to get on the list. So earlier this week, Mike and I just returned from the National Championship Air Races at Reno, Nevada. Unfortunately, it was the last one that they'll ever have there, close to 60 years in the running, but they are moving it to another venue, hopefully, in the next couple of years. And uh, it was a, a very eventful and exhausting week, but it was also successful because I I was able to campaign my plane without any maintenance issues and came home with a trophy, which is always nice. Yeah, it was a nice trophy, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Very cool. And I'm Dave, Dave, Dave just got a plaque. <laughs> no, well, there was a snafu. Dave actually got a trophy. He oh. um, they they awarded the trophies based on how they would have raced on the last day, which ended up not happening. They had to cancel early. Um, but instead they should have awarded the trophies based on where he finished the previous day. So he ended up getting a third place gold trophy in the jet class, flying his L-39. That's a picture of the start off of the pace plane. He's the red and white airplane shown in the stack up there in the chute. And then I got a a trophy for flying in the medallion class of the sport class. There's me and Mike at the banquet. My airplane actually turned out being much slower than I expected for a number of reasons, I didn't come with my fangs out this year. We didn't turn the prop up or put a race prop on or something. And that was probably good for 10 miles per hour more than I ran. But it was my first year back and I wanted to take it easy, not knowing it would be the last year at Reno, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, the good news about your approach was that the airplane didn't break. The bad news was that you weren't as fast as you could have been. 
All these yeah. guys, I was, I was, this is my, was my first I, and last, I guess, <laughs> time at Reno. <laughs> and it was really interesting to, to, to see these, these airplanes because the ones that weren't turbocharged mostly were carrying not nitrous oxide bottles in the back. Yep. I didn't, didn't even heard five, about using nitrous oxide. Bottles. Yeah. But they're apparently nitrous. They, they spray nitrous oxide. It's the same stuff that they, you get at the dentist's office if you're really lucky <laughs> into the uh, induction system to um, provide additional oxy oxygenation of the fuel. And it's, it's almost like turbocharging. It just, it, it just gets more fuel oxidized in a different way. And it's not, it's not really practical for normal people because, because, the bottle only lasts about five minutes. Yeah, the the most fun is to see people who are running nitrous during a race suddenly run out, and it's literally like <laughs> there's a big rubber band pulling them back, and they get and the guy behind them has to you know anticipate that and shoot past. There are airplanes in the race. A lot of them are running Continental IO 550s, basically the 550N, which is the Cirrus engine, and some of them are turbo boosted up to 100 inches of manifold pressure. I, I I wouldn't have even believed that the cylinder heads could stay on the barrels at 100 inches of manifold pressure. Yeah, the, so the sport class do. had a very exciting year. The top two racers went 410 and 406 miles per hour, the fastest that we've ever run aircraft. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see the two fastest aircraft duke it out in the final race because it was canceled because they're it's probably well known. There was a midair in the T6 class on Sunday. And so out of um, a difference to the families, uh, they canceled the rest of the racing that uh, that day. It's very sad. But it, that's, that's it why was Dave didn't get to race in race the, gold in the race. final race. Yeah. yeah. Which we were really looking forward to. But Dave, Dave went the fastest he's ever gone in an L39. I think it was four, close to 450 miles an hour. And um, I, I've gone faster in the past, but I had fun. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. And uh, the last time that I was on the course, I'm going around the pylons, finishing my last lap. And I just sat back and, and took a big, deep breath and thought, I get to do this. And this, I will never forget this course, you know, and this experience. It's, it was amazing. So our first question is from Blake, who I'd like to point out is a newly minted private pilot. Congratulations. Yay. Yeah. Uh, he has a compass in his plane with a mind of its own. Go ahead, Blake. So I'll describe my problem a little bit, right? As I'm starting my instrument training, the compass is becoming more and more important. Uh, not just following the magenta line, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and uh, have realized that my compass has a mind of its own. Um, on the ground, it works fine. Works great. Everything like it, you can, you know, uh, taxi around in 360s and it looks like it's absolutely perfect. But uh, after you take off and get up in the air at, at power, it will basically lock into a, a heading yeah. that it says. And you can watch the compass needle just vibrate back and forth like this. Even if you're doing 45 degree turns out there, it well, will this, not change. This is a Mooney, right? Yeah. Well, it's supposed to do that. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is this a... A wet compass or a vertical card compass or it is a wet, it is a wet compass. It's a it's an air air path regular whisk whiskey compass with whiskey real whisk, compass, real whiskey yeah. in it. So here we go back to those electrons that you can't see. <laughs> this is my problem with electricity. It does stuff and you can't touch it. Right. Well, this is right out of Star Trek. So you have this. Uh, you know, everything was uh, some sort of electromagnetic field, plasma, something. 
your your frame, the cabin that you sit in, is a steel tube frame, and it can get case. magnetized. Yes, I have heard that. Yeah, so you get a. But but why would it be magnetized in in the air and not on the ground? He's at higher RPM and he's got more current flow through. Yeah, or he's, something under the panel. Yeah, so it's a ground return path as well sometimes. Yeah, uh, or he's turned on the nav lights or he's turned on strobes. Yeah. You know, but he's, all he's, that, 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 that's why my reaction, and I'm, but I'd be kind of surprised if he hadn't done, like he hadn't done this already, was uh, switch things to, off to just start and, turning yeah. things off until the compass comes alive and figure out what the last thing you turned off was. Do you have pullable circuit breakers on, on your panel? I do. Well, you should, you should go start pulling, pulling circuit breakers in flight when this is happening and see what breaker you can pull that makes it go away. Yeah. Would it make sense that at lower RPM or lower settings, it's not as bad? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because there's less current flow and the ground path that uh, Paul's talking about. It, you, you said something about how you were flying at a slower speed at one point in rain. The rain was a distractor, but the slower speed and the lower RPMs is, is right on. And you said that the compass worked freely. So it's definitely RPM related, which the alternator is tied to the RPM because it's connected directly to the prop. So at lower RPMs, your alternator's putting out maybe less current and the, the problem goes away. So it's definitely a current issue. Current flow through wires creates a magnetic field around the wires and that directly impacts your compass if those wires are close enough. You can tell she teaches this stuff. I teach it. And actually, <laughs> in the section that I teach, we talk about compasses and we talk about magnetic shielding of compasses. It is possible to shield some a compass by putting high magnetic permeability metal uh, cage around the compass so that the magnetic field, uh, the, the, the exterior magnetic fields choose to go through the material instead of through the compass. It's kind of, a, it's just trying to drive home the concept of magnetic permeability, which is like low resistance to magnetic fields. So it encourages the fields to go through the material. So why doesn't, why doesn't it do the same thing for the magnetic field of the earth and make the compass not work anymore? I'm not sure about that question, but... Yeah, that's another another piece to add to that story. Uh, I had one of the mechanics on the field that suggested the same. You know, turn thing turn things off. Do mag do a mag check. See if it follows each either mag, pull breakers. And he asked about the alternator breaker uh, and if I had a, a circuit to be able to pull the alternator field to check that right. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'll do that one of these days. You know, he's like, you should probably do it like over the uh, when you're close to the airfield and you know you electric gear in case for some reason it doesn't come back on and and you're good to go and. I think people say things and then they come true. It was probably the next flight. I was doing a, an approach at an airport, probably 20 miles away from my home airport. And as we're climbing out after that, my engine monitor starts flashing at me that <laughs> it has negative seven amps. All right. Oh. And uh, look at it. And sure enough, my, uh, my lead to the alternator uh, broke field, off. And uh, yeah, my field lead had, yeah. had broken off. And that's never happened to me. <laughs> At the time, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure if I had the uh, you know the mental capacity to go not worry about the issue and making sure I got back and communicated and got my gear down before electrical died and all that other stuff. If I really paid attention to if the compass was acting normal at that point in life, that would have been the perfect opportunity. Well, you can pull the field wire. I'm, I'm field breaker. There's a breaker for it. Yeah, uh, if it's pullable, you know. Yeah, I do have good. that. Or just shut the alternator off with a split switch if you've got that. I do not have a split switch. Okay. okay. I'll have to That's have enough. to pull the field. Okay. Well, I, I have one more little thing to add. And there's some 
Mooney people that have been waiting for someone to say this, so I'm, I'm going to say it, may not be the problem. But there's an old thing when if the steel frame becomes magnetized, it can be permanently magnetized. You have to degauss it, is what they call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I would and, and be careful when you do this because there Take are things in the out. airplane that you don't <laughs> want degaussed, like mm. certain uh, permanent magnets in your nav indicators, the little needle movements and those the sort alternator? of things. Well, no, that's that's too far away. So you're going to, and you, you'll read up on it. There's a, a way you take a, a degaussing. It's, it's a coil. You're going to get this big coil and you're going to move it all around inside the airplane, inside the cabin, and you're going to degauss or demagnetize the frame. So I would definitely do that. I can't believe that it's a magnetized frame. If, I, I, if I don't think it's on the ground. I don't think it is, but if it's slightly magnetized, a little bit of extra current that we're talking about could aggravate that. And so if you're going to get into all this whole process, you want to degauss it just because it's a cool, fun thing to do. And just, hey, hey Bl- just Blake, where is, where is the compass mounted? Is it on the glare shield or is it out on the windshield or where is it or mounted? The panel? It's on the metal bar that goes uh, through the yeah. windshield there. On the metal bar where the current flows. Yep. Yep. I I have brought other compasses up in the air with me to see if they do the same thing. And they do. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, I don't think it's classified, but they, they do degauss submarines before they send them out to sea. So (laughs) I I don't think that, I think that's okay to say. It's a big giant, big giant coil. Yeah. Because that signature can be detected. I mean, you know, magnetic signatures that are a big hunk of metal. Where do you go to uh, talk about degaussing? I've never heard of that for an aircraft airframe. Well, it's a Mooney thing, and it's actually oh. in the service <laughs> manual. This yeah, you is... go. You go the same place that seals the tanks, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, go go take a look in the service manual, and it'll hey, explain degaussing. Or talk I, I about had, Mooney I space. A, I had an interesting thought. What if the engine ground strap wasn't installed properly? So there's ground loops. It's so that so that the the, the return path for the alternator is going through something that it it shouldn't go through. Like I I, I once had an airplane that 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 developed a, a very stiff throttle control. Oh yeah, and it, and, it, oh, yeah. and it turned it turned out that 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 the ground strap of the engine wasn't installed properly. So the 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 return path for the alternator. Was was through wow. the throttle push pull control, which was Man. glowing almost red hot during yeah, the flight, and welding itself. And, in and place. no wonder it no wonder it was stiff. <laughs> when you say the ground, are you talking the the, the thick the copper braided? braided yeah, one? exactly. Okay, yeah. So yesterday, while we were looking at my fuel flow issue, I All decided right. to it's actually right look yeah. at where that was. It's on the right side of the engine, in my case, where the yeah, vent is usually, for heat. Yeah, it usually bridges across. Goes uh, one of the Lord mounts and goes from the from the crankcase to the uh, to the to the engine mount the bolt. Yeah. tubing. In my, mine, it goes so there's like uh, you know aluminum sheet metal on the fire by the firewall there uh, where the heat comes in is where one end of it is. It goes straight to the firewall. Okay. Yep, and then the other end of it uh, is on the back side of the engine. There, I'm gonna think say I'm not an A and don't know things like that well, but. It looks like probably the accessory side of the the case, uh-huh. yeah. But it also looks like it's painted. It's it doesn't look like it's painted green, does it? 
It does. Yeah. Oh. Well, zinc chromated. So, no, 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 probably tarnished because oh. it's it's tinned copper. It's copper. And when it when it gets old, it starts corroding and it looks green. Now I'm not. I, I haven't seen it. It may be green paint for all I know. But, I don't. Uh, I know the copper color. It doesn't look like it's cop. It's uh, the the cable's copper clean, right? And where it's going to the case is it's, a painted thing. Wait, it's the this braided wire is copper colored it's not like tin not silver colored oh no it's copper oh uh, they have an uh, nice automotive braid on there then <laughs> so yeah and i mean it, it works but mm -hmm. the original would not have been that it would have been tinned copper but you can't look at those connections and say oh they look good that's kind of meaningless apart, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. you have to take them apart it's a you problem to, with electrons. Well, that was my my <laughs> first thought after looking at it yesterday. Was it looks like somebody grounded it to a painted, a well painted new surface? Yeah, I can't yeah, do yeah. that. That that yeah. could be a problem. One, one thing that that is you you could do, although it's a little bit of a, of a pain, is is to measure the voltage uh, between the between the firewall and the engine case with the engine running and the alternator putting out some, some current. There should be literally no voltage, measurable voltage drop. And that would um, be, neg for the negative would be on like the, either the case it, or firewall it, to the positive on the alternator? You're, you're, not, you're not worried about the direction of current flow. You're looking at the difference of potential. You, you don't want to have, you don't want to have any current flow. <laughs> would, I, is, does the Mooney have an electric gear yeah. actuator? The F so model does. When you put the gear down, you might have one of those volt. nice big Johnson bars, huh? Those were, those. That those never failed. We so had the, he, we had the sorry we had the F model that Mooney used to certify the electric gear and the Century Three autopilot. So we had an, the first F model that originally had the Johnson bar, but they took it all out, and we that that was one of Dad's planes. He was a Mooney fanatic, not fanatic fan, Mooney fan. I, I was just going to offer that fan, if he does. Fan is an abbreviation for fanatic. If he yes. does have a big voltage drop somewhere in his ground path return, um, when he activates the landing gear, he might see a big um, see swing a in voltage. Yeah. And that would be an indication that you do have some kind of ground path issues. Okay. And then I could do on, on the ground with, like when it's up on uh, yeah. jacks, right? On jacks. Sure, but it's more, more fun to do it in the air. That's true. Absolutely. Especially, especially at night. On, on the Aurora. Watch if you have a voltage readout on your engine monitor, you'll yeah. see that that drop because it's the inrush current of the gear motor starting causes a huge um, curve flow, and if there's a big voltage uh, or high resistance somewhere in your system, that would cause a big voltage drop. Oh, so you're, you're saying heard. you're saying just pay attention to the JPI voltage when I lower the yep. gear. It used to. I had this problem, and it used to reset my JPI because it's very sensitive in voltage. You, you notice. You notice how Colleen is throwing all these technical terms that is like inrush current and magnetic permeability. I mean, Sorry, wow. I, this is the only thing I teach. <laughs> we, we love it. This is awesome. Well, Paul's the, I'm, Paul's I'm the electronics notes. expert. <laughs> so for, for that info, I can probably go and I don't know if my JPI records uh, voltage, but I can it probably does. go look it to does. my my savvy aviation um, reports and find, yep. find when I put the gear you, down and what the voltage does. You might, except your JPI is only recording once per second. Yeah, and it might not catch and, it. Yeah. Uh, spike may not show up. But keep in mind, all these imperfections that uh, Colleen is talking about in the electrical system, 
it doesn't take a lot of current flow to create a magnetic field. So you may not see this big jump. If you do, it's like, well, you definitely have a problem. And I'm assuming that this is a problem that didn't just suddenly start. The compass has been there. I yeah. like I don't know how when I when I bought the plane and drove and flew it home from Missouri, I, I don't know if that was the thing I was most excited about, right? It was my first plane and I had just gotten my license, right? <laughs> yeah. So but, things but, are happening. But, but you said that, that you tried it with just a little hand compass and it did the same thing? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did you try it in the back seat? Uh <laughs> not really. No, uh, that was actually my next thing was I got to find a, somebody that wants to crawl around, you know, back in the luggage area and, and see if it works back there. While you're flying. <laughs> yeah. Because my my theory is it's something that's that's physically pretty close to where the compass is mounted. Because it's mount, mounted. You like know, I, I did try it, you know, closer to me, you know, another a foot back from where the compass is, then it was still doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, your pre-buy should have caught that the compass card should have just had one number right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing, when I, when, I, when I picked up the plane after the pre-buy, because the, the, I had the pre-buy done down in Missouri there, it had no compass card. Ah! Uh-huh. <laughs> well, oh, and, now, and now we know why the compass card <laughs> was right. removed. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, and when you say, yeah. like, a, the voltage drop that I should see when I lower the gear, what's... what? amount of drop should I be seeing? Several volts. I mean, it's a 12 volt system. So we're talking like down below acceptable for avionics. I was seeing like down, but then again, it's exacerbated when your battery is weaker too, because the battery acts as a big buffer in your electrical system. So like, what's the actuator, like an accumulator in the electrical system. So it's the battery will kind of absorb some of the reverb of, you know, changes in voltage. So Weak battery will exacerbate it. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think the JPI, if it goes below 10 volts, it's just crying. Yeah, logs, logs, the best or the worst they show is 13.7 when they when I put the gear down. Uh, yeah. So, so it no. might not have caught it. It might have no. been very quick. Yeah, yeah, it could have been real quick. But definitely, I, I would suggest in all this, check out your grounds, you know, pull the breakers, find out if a particular system makes a problem go away. But I think you need to degauss your frame. Uh, I just really do. Because if you're holding it in your hand a foot away from where the other one is and it's still doing it, it's not the thing that it's physically bolted to. It's all around you. <laughs> it's all if, around if, you. Boy, I tell you, if it, if it was my mooning, I would try everything else before I went to degauss the, the frame. Oh, gosh, degaussing is cool. It sounds cool. Yeah. I understand the concept of it. And I know, Blake, I... Here's what you need to do. You need to fly your airplane to Jackson, Tennessee, and let Paul <laughs> degauss your airframe because he is just itching to degauss the Mooney. I'm all for it because every, everybody so. I talk to goes like, yeah, you might have to degauss it. No idea who does that or how to do it. You, you'll have to find somebody. You, you, you make an appointment at the shop. Paul's going to start winding the coil right now. Right now. <laughs> I, I can probably be there in five hours, Paul. Yeah, man. <laughs> Go read. If, do you have, you have a copy of the maintenance manual, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Go look in the maintenance man. It tells you all about it. Huh? Gotcha. Where yeah, do you where do you get the, the coil to do it though? Oh, you'll find <laughs> go <laughs> go to some was, go to some alternator Har- or Harbor starter Freight. shop. I was gonna say Radio Shack, but they don't have yeah. those. They don't have those, thing. yeah. It'll be a big massive heavy thing. You plug it in and you feel kind of stupid. Don't do it when other people are looking because they'll they'll think you've lost your mind. You you literally you just hold this thing in your hand. Yeah, you're you're doing that. You're just moving it around in the cabin, and uh, it's creating and it's, this big it's, field. 
it's powered by what? Just 115 you, volt alternating yeah. current or something? Yeah, you plug okay. it into the wall. And but seriously, read the. There's some limitations. Uh, be careful what you hold it close to in terms of instrumentation. So on that note, I mentioned you know when we started, what might be my solution? We'll come back to it. Uh, conversation is my my approach is probably super drastic, which is put in a whole new panel. Oh, yeah. Oh no, I think that's a it perfect not, idea. Oh, no, they can yeah. put a magnetometer like in the tail or a, a wing somewhere, and maybe the problem won't be there anymore. Well, that's but you still have to have a compass yeah. though. <laughs> you have to. Have, you still have to have the wet compass. Uh, Do you? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. I just I just want to go on record and say that I don't believe that 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 your airframe needs to be degaussed because because the problem doesn't happen on the ground. So, yeah. well, I'll start with my my ground that looks like it's on a painted surface. I noticed yesterday. That's, that's a good so start. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you will come back to us when you have found the problem, and we'll find out whether. Paul's enthusiasm for degaussing <laughs> your airframe was appropriate or not. Well, here's the deal. So you have to do one step at a time. You can't do like, you know, fix the ground, pull the breakers and degauss all at once. Because we we'll we'll never is. know. Yeah. yeah, we have to know. I'm an IT data guy by by heart. So yeah, okay. I, I love very methodical one step at a time Almost here. Good. We will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go fly this weekend and pull breakers. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that doesn't work, we'll take the cowling off and check the ground. And after that, I I guess I de- de- I bring the, the plane to Paul. <laughs> you, know, you can degauss this yourself. That's why it's so much fun. Then you get to tell people, yes, I got out my magic wand and I degaussed the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I will report back on what we find. We're, awesome. we're going to be waiting for that report. I Absolutely. thought this was a great question, Blake. Thanks yeah. for... Thanks for uh, thinking of us. We like. I I yeah. appreciate the time, and I, I thank you guys for preaching. The, you know, Lena Peak and and engine monitors, because uh, I truly believe that you know if I continued on my three hour journey last weekend or on Monday, things mm. things could have been really interesting. Uh, do, yeah. do we pre- do we preach that? Yes, yep. you do. We do get kind of <laughs> preachy. <laughs> good. Well, we're we're glad you're still with us, Blake. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and good luck on your instrument rating. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. See you, Blake. Our next question is from Lenny, who is ready to pick up the wrench, but he's worried about the trouble that could come from it. (laughs) Go ahead, Lenny. Lots of trouble. (laughs) Such a pleasure to talk to you guys. I feel like I'm talking to a bunch of my friends. So I started started working on airplanes when I was 14. I'm 54 now. I was wiping the oil off 421s. My dad was a charter pilot. Oh, cool. And so... Uh, that's how I paid to get my pilot's license while I was in still high school. But I, I chose a different career path, and I'm retiring this year after 30 years as a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm going through with my plan. I'm an apprentice machinist, and I'm, I've got my light sport repairman maintenance rating, and I'm working on my A&P for about two years. I've got three A&Ps, two IAs that I'm working with and getting this done. So I'm going to do it no matter what. That's the bottom line. But as I was thinking, uh, because I make extra money as a handyman and a tutor, that I, I can make more money <laughs> with no liability tutoring algebra students <laughs> than I can, you know, working on Cherokees and such. But general aviation is what I want to do. I don't want to work for the airlines. Mm-hmm. I want to work on the airplanes that I fly. So I'm worried about the liability mostly because I have assets now and I, I don't want to, obviously I'm going to be very careful, but 
I just want to, I'm more worried about other people. Like how is anybody going to make it as a mechanic with the amount of liability and the, um, the lack of pay really? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just sad. And I've heard Mike talk about this a lot from his webinar from the pilot's perspective about finding mechanics. But what about people who want to become mechanics? You know, what's the good path for us? It seems like a hard one. I'm doing it though. Good for you. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, you know, I, I teach a lot of uh, mechanics in school or budding mechanics, and they all want to go straight to the airlines because that's where the money is. And I just desperately say, you know, there's there's a niche in GA that's fun and you can own your own shop. And there's something that's not just the numbers, the, the money that you're going to make and the benefits. It's also about job satisfaction. But it's a real hard sell to the younger crowd, you know. Yeah, I'm just yeah. right for it. I'm in the right spot. Yeah. Well, so yeah. you you get it, though. You understand that life is more about just making the money. Money's great, not not discounting that. But at some point, you have to enjoy what's happening. And like, I enjoy doing this podcast. I enjoy teaching classes. I enjoy instructing guys out in the shop. Um, I enjoy troubleshooting. And I had the opportunity to go in with FedEx in their avionics department about well, I guess it's 35 or 40 years ago. And the first thing that occurred to me uh, once I saw the place was, oh, I'll be sitting at a bench working on transponders for six months. And then they'll move me all the way up to Lorance or Inertia Nav or something, whatever it was. And I thought that just sounded so boring. I, just, I couldn't stand it, just couldn't stand it. So GA is is filled with troubleshooting get to figure it out. There's a lot of things that you're going to do on Pipers and Cessnas and all that, that there's no instructions for. So you get to actually be a mechanic. You get to figure it out. Uh, you get to do it the right way. And yes, there's liability issues. Uh, there are pay issues, depending on where you go. We are working really hard to get our pay up and figure out how to make that happen, which means everybody has to be efficient in the shop so that we're not giving away a lot of time, which we do. That's just kind of the way it works. But I think the pay scale is coming up. People are figuring out that it's not the mechanic's job to make flying affordable. That's something that I say a lot. You know, when somebody shows up on a Saturday with a broken airplane, I don't necessarily feel obligated to give up my personal time on a Saturday to go fix their airplane. I will. But you see what I'm saying? There's there's that little give and take that has to happen because mechanics have lives as well. You are not ever going to totally protect yourself from a lawsuit. I don't care what you do, whether you're driving a car, work on a motorcycle, speedboats, you know, whatever. You can just do the best you can do. And if you do it right, you document it well, follow the rules. You can't be worried about lawsuits. You just have to say, you know what? I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing it the right way. And if a lawsuit comes along, it just does. Don't worry about it. You just can't, you can't live your life in that fear. Aviation is a, is an industry where liability is, is inherent. And you, you can either try to avoid liability, which I think is the wrong approach, or you can insure against it, which I think is the right approach. You, you know, you, you, you just have to get insurance. It tends to be kind of expensive. But then it lets you do do the right thing and not have to, you know, be worried about liability all the time. 
which is an, a lot, well, way too many bad maintenance decisions are made based on <laughs> yeah. on avoidance of perceived right. liability, and right. and, and it's, it's it's a it's a really pernicious yeah. thing in this business. Replacing the engine instead of uh, putting on a new exhaust gasket, you know, it's like, come on, Lenny. Lenny, <laughs> where 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 are you based? What what airport are you at? Uh, Hampton Roads Airport in Chesapeake, oh, Virginia. PVG. PVG. I used okay. to be based it's there. Pretty, a pretty good ago. size airport. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to to run an idea past you, which is something that I've been entertaining because I think the time is right for it, and that is the possibility of getting together a group of aircraft owners and forming a maintenance club, where instead of running a traditional shop you would contract with this group of aircraft owners to take care of their aircraft on a fixed monthly basis. And you you could probably make a lot more money that way than you could, could ever make working for a traditional maintenance shop. Uh, you could probably negotiate uh, some waiver of liability to, to these owners because you're, you're basically part of a uh, you know, part of an association you'd be creating for this purpose. It's it, it's kind of the maintenance analogy of a flying club. It's also similar to like a boutique medical practice. And I really think the time is right for that. I I think the the traditional maintenance shop model is uh, is is causing a lot of problems. And I, I like that idea. I heard you talk about that on the webinar, Mike. And I I thought that was a great approach to mm. doing it. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you guys. Well, we hope you stick with it, Lenny. It's, it's a, I think it's, uh, I love GA maintenance and I, I think we're trying to make it attractive to people so that they don't just go follow the dollars, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I, I've worked, on, life I've worked on an airplane this morning. I got metal shavings in my hair and the whole bit. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> 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 I want to be like that. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Good luck with that. Thank you. Bye now. Our next question is from Andres, who might be making Lena Peak a little more complicated than it needs to be. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Hi, Colleen. Paul, Mike. Uh, Pleasure to be on the show. I'm a a listener, religious listener uh, every time an episode drops. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Good. We're glad you're here. So uh, here's the setup. Uh, I fly a 2006 uh, G36 Bonanza. Uh, we fly it uh, pretty Very religiously, uh, lean of peak. Uh, we've read all the, you know, Pelican's Perch and, uh, you know, savvy analysis blog posts and, uh, and, and uh, Mike's Engine book and, and the works. And, uh, and we're converts. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna fly Lena Peak, you have to do it religiously. That's the yeah, only that's way to right. do it, <laughs> uh, and very much so. And and you know we believe it's worked well. Like the engine, you know, every annual comes out pretty clean. Uh, our mechanic originally, who's a wonderful mechanic, was was less of a convert, but as he's seen uh, the engine over the past six hundred or so hours, uh, I think he's 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 coming around to the fact yeah. that this appears to work. Now for my question. So uh, I'm having a little bit of a of a potential overcomplication, as Paul said it, or or uh, or dissonance between the famous red box or red fin, and just following CHTs and and following maybe the simpler uh, method uh, espoused by Mike, which is you know big red pull till roughness and then you know rich and just a bit. 
And to make it specific, so if I'm, you know, at lowish altitude, so let's call it, you know, 2,500 feet or, or, or 6,500 feet, and I rent and I lean to roughness and then richen, I, I will stay, you know, well out of the red box usually. But I have plenty of space to continue to richen the, uh, the mixture, get a little bit more airspeed, trade off some, some uh, mileage for sure, but still stay well below 380 CHTs in the 350 to 340 kind of range. But if I look at my Delta EGT, I'm well in the red box or maybe the orange fin. So my question is, what gives, right? Is the red box kind of more of a guidance and what really matters is CHTs or am I risking high ICPs and potential cylinder damage? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated to know how you know where this red box is. You obviously have a different methodology than I do. There's a theoretical red box, which is based on internal cylinder pressure. The only place that that red box exists is in George's test stand in Ada, Oklahoma, <laughs> because he installs tricked out spark plugs and he can actually see what internal cylinder pressure is. But the rest of us, we great unwashed people, don't have the ability <laughs> to, to, to see internal cylinder pressure. So the only proxy that we do have which is fairly closely related to internal cylinder pressure, is uh, cylinder head temperature. So there's George's theoretical red box, which he can measure in his test cell, but the rest of us can't. And then there's sort of the practical red box, which is based on CHT, which we actually are able to see. So you're talking about this very mystical concept to me of being outside the the practical red box, but inside the theoretical red box, I guess. <laughs> and that's exactly my question, Mike, is, is there something in that theoretical red box that is of value that I'm perhaps not capturing by just looking at CHTs where I might be inadvertently, you know, being more aggressive with my richening post the, the big red pull than I, than I ought to be? Well, you know, again, I... The way I operate is is on the basis of cylinder head temperature. And I understand that, that cylinder head temperature is not a perfect proxy for internal cylinder pressure, that there are some other things that affect it, such as outside air temperature. So if you were flying in, in very cold weather, you might want to lower your CHT target below say the 380 that you normally use but other than that it seems to me if your chts are are are, are at or below 380 degrees you shouldn't be stressing about red box issues yeah that was my first thought that is uh, that is that is very comforting the bottom line is chts i mean we can't measure icps i mean so. all i can all i can tell you is that i've been doing it this way for many many decades now and my engines are very happy and living exceptionally long lives beyond what they owe me. <laughs> and so I I just think you're the introduction was you're making it more complicated than it needs to be. I think I think you're making it more complicated than it needs yeah. to be. Which is good news. That's good. Which, that's fantastic news. Yeah. yeah. And you you're not turbocharged, correct? No, normally aspirated. What kind of altitudes are you typically cruising? So, you know, flat lander from Florida. So usually uh, for short trips, I'm doing 
you know, four to six thousand um, uh, VFR, so four and a half to yeah. six and a half thousand. If I'm flying to the Bahamas, I'll try to be higher just to have a little bit more sky under me. Are you flying at wide open throttle? Wide open throttle, lean of peak. Uh, yep. okay. I only touch them. I only touch the manifold on descent if needed. And how? What RPM? Depending. I'll usually do a 2400, which seems to have a nice kind of noise signature trade-off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the way the plane sounds and vibrates at that speed. Sure. Uh, but I'll do a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on the on the situation. So 2300 yeah. to 2500. That's how I fly my IO550. It's wide open throttle. I back the RPM down. Well, I don't have the control that you have, so I can get down to about 2450 because mine's not properly rigged. Someday I'm sure I'll fix it. You don't have, haven't installed that STC that gives you a, a third lever, huh? I, I get close enough. You know, I can get it down to 2450. <laughs> it does just fine. And uh, and I'll go lean a peak at the lower altitudes. I go till, well, mine doesn't run rough, so I can't really use that. But I know where my fuel flows need to go. So at lower altitudes, I'll just go to 13 and a half gallons an hour, 14 gallons an hour, whatever, depending on how fast I want to go. But when I'm at six or 7,000 feet, I, sometimes I'll lean for airspeed because CHTs are always cool. And I am, uh, by virtue of the altitude at 6,000 feet, hot day, I may be at seven or 8,000 feet on, on the actual altitude, pressure altitude. And so I'll maybe lean to peak or 10 degrees rich a peak or, you know, wherever it makes the airplane go the fastest. Works out really good. That sounds uh, very consistent with how I've been flying. So yeah. that that is, uh, and 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 Mike, you made a comment about uh, perhaps adjusting it for cold temperatures, which is you know vanishingly rare where I usually fly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you you probably never fly below ISA. <laughs> but but I you know we do try to take yearly safaris off into the rest of the country. We've been to Colorado a couple of times, so we we have uh, we have uh, dallied in colder temperatures. Is there a rule of thumb to how to adjust kind of the 380 target down on in colder temperatures? I don't really have a have a rule of thumb. It it seems so rare that we operate at, at temperatures below ISA, you know. But you know, if if it was really cold out, I would probably drop my target maybe 20 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. That's not scientific, but I don't I don't think you need to be scientific. Most most people make this too complicated. You know, the red box it isn't a box. It, 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 George teaches that way, but it has fuzzy boundaries, okay? It, it's, I like to think of it as a, a, a yellow box in which there's a red box and, and inside of which there's a magenta box, you know, and the deeper <laughs> in that you get, the worse it is. It, it's, it's a very fuzzy thing. Uh, it's, not, it's not a sharp edge thing where three degrees on one side is, is really great and three degrees on the other side is just terrible. It, it doesn't work that way. Oh, this 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 is helpful. Sorry, Colleen. And I, my leaning, I'm not very precise. I, I just try to get on the lean side, and then I just lean to what the engine sounds good at, like Paul said, the RPM and the fuel flow. So sometimes I'm very close to peak just because it's operating best there. I can hear it missing if I get too lean. So it just it, it, it varies with the altitude and the temperature and, and what settings I have on the engine. So I use I use the butt method to lean. Works for me. Can we say TLAR, but substitute, but I don't think mm. that, no. Uh, no, it doesn't sound got, good. It doesn't sound right. That's a good <laughs> one. It, you know, I, we, we all agree, I think, that you're overthinking it. 
Um, you're you're definitely uh, <laughs> a pilot. So you're definitely a pilot. <laughs> you're definitely a pilot, and you. Yeah. And when I do classes like for the the Sears groups and the Columbia groups, we we have the the fin. As Mike was saying, you know, it's different colors, but in ours, the fin it's it's all red, but it's like shades of red. And the closer you get to the middle of the fin, the more intense the red is. And out on the edges, it's more of a light pink sort of thing. And um, so many people want it to be complicated that in their minds they overthink it. Which sometimes, like in a podcast, overthinking is great. We we you know we wouldn't have we anything sound to so say. Impressive. Yeah. That's right. It sounds we use so much big better. words. <laughs> yeah, you like. Colleen's been using big like electrical magnetic words permeability. Today. That's right. <laughs> per how many syllables is that? Not too many. Yeah, Tennessee. So, yeah, but uh, what? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> almost got that past him. <laughs> oh, I, I was listening. I was listening. Three yeah. three cylinders is I mean three syllables is the maximum. <laughs> three I, boy, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Three yeah. syllables is the maximum yeah. permitted in Tennessee. Yeah. Otherwise, you have to split it. You have to hyphenate it. Have to hyphenate it. Well, red is two or three syllables if you say it right. <laughs> yeah, but I, leaning, <laughs> once you've done it in the airplane, all the theory stuff is great, but the actual function of leaning is just as simple as what you've been doing. Boom, you pull it back there. And if you don't get it exactly spot on, nothing horrible is going to happen. You remember, it's 1950s technology engine, and we're applying a lot of new data to make it more precise. And I don't know. I think you, we... you, you know what somebody ought to do? We, we, we need a new instrument in our cockpit. It's a happiness gauge. <laughs> we're, yeah. How happy is the engine? And we just want to manipulate the controls to make sure that the engine is happy. Like a fun meter. Oh, the engine yeah. fun meter. <laughs> yeah. Well, the engine sounds pretty happy and and looks pretty happy on 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 inspection. So then don't change what you're well, doing. <laughs> you're doing good. Do more of yeah. it. Yeah. But keep going. You know, change what you're doing in the sense that you should stop stressing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't change the physical yeah. things. Yeah. Do. do the same thing. <laughs> just don't think about it as much. Exactly. <laughs> sounds fantastic. You can fly it like you're a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like just don't think about it. Just do it. Look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, good question. Yeah, good question. Yeah. yeah. And it was a pleasure meeting you all. Thank yes, you so yeah. much for taking you the time. You as well. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks for dialing in. Bye, Andres. Bye. Our next question is from James, who's trying to jailbreak his Rotax. I, I can tell this is not going to go well for me with Rotax, but go ahead, James. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks. My written question is more thorough than my audio explanation, but to recap, I have a uh, experimental light sport with a 912 IS. And for those that aren't familiar with a 912 IS, it's a Rotax engine has uh, two computers controlling the system. They uh, Each cylinder has two fuel injectors, two spark plugs, and it uh, has uh, dual fuel pumps. It requires about 40-ish 
PSI and the fuel rails to operate. There, the computer programming is uh, accomplished by dongles. And I have a level three dongle, which would allow me to download uh, and update the software of the engine if Rotex came out with any new software. I probably should have gotten a level four, which allows people to uh, actually change some of the parameters of the way the engine runs. And um, at full power, 100% throttle, there's a potentiometer on the throttle, so you know what the percent range is. At between 97 and 100%, it goes into the, for lack of a better term, maybe the performance mode. And it pumps about a little over six gallons an hour through the engine. And when you pull it back to 97% or below, it goes into the economy range and it gets much more thrifty and it'll do about 4.2 gallons an hour. And if you pull it back just a little bit more, you can get about four gallons out of it. And at four gallons per hour, it, um, the EGTs are the only thing I can look at because it's got uh, coolant temperature versus individual right. CHTs. So you don't know what each cylinder is doing. You just know what the coolant is. So it really isn't an issue, of course, because it's got coolant. But just judging from the EGTs and the experience I've had with other engines, I think it could be just a little more frugal. And maybe Rotex doesn't want to go there. And I was wondering if I could change the fuel flow. The easiest way to do it, of course, would be to hack the programming and change the fuel injection, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't think this is your phone. I don't think you're going to well, jailbreak does it, does this. this, this, you this jailbreak your phone. Does this level four <laughs> dongle allow you, what does it allow you to do? It allows me to do troubleshooting, reset any alarms and alerts. And then if there's a, uh, a program that it'll allow me to, to uh, change the program of the computers. So it's, you, by, it sounds but, like that's what you want, right? Yeah. By changing the program of the computers, is that, are you saying change the 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 leaning schedule or the oh oh on the level four I'm sorry yeah 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 on the on the level four you can do that exactly well that's uh, sounds like that's what you need that sounds like this it, yeah. it is but I already have a level three and they're about nine hundred ish so oh. level four is get rid of the one I have they're not are they're about the same I I should have probably bought a level four I don't know if, I didn't even know if they were available for what I plan to do when I first bought it is just use it to reprogram mine if there was new software that came out. And so, there hasn't been. Can you sell your level three and buy a level four? I think I probably could. Yeah. 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 So I have to ask, because I, I really don't know much about Rotex. I, they seem like really excellent engines. But you say it has two fuel injectors. And where do they inject? Are they injecting... a Above the intake valve, like a traditional aircraft engine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And but but they're but they're uh, it's electronic 
um, like on a yeah. So yeah. it's so it's not pressure modulated. It's right. Pulse width modulated. Pulse width. Yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. So you could either change the pressure or you could change the pulse width. To, yeah, you probably can't change, change the pressure. The, the pressure is probably regulated, and and, and the time. At the end of the fuel rail, it goes in one side of the fuel rail and then over to the other and then back out to the fuel tanks, any excess fuel. And there's a pressure regulator as it exits the fuel rails. So now, being the orneriness that I can be sometimes, you know, I'm not used to an airplane that flies at four gallons an hour. Yeah. What are and, you complaining and about? How much, how much more <laughs> frugal are you looking for and yeah. why? <laughs> just to play with it. Oh, okay. oh can't, okay. Can't not touch it. Right? Can't not touch it. It's wet paint. You have to do something. During, yeah. During COVID, I, I ran out of things to do. So I, <laughs> so I, so I put a uh, yaw damper oh, on yes. the airplane. So oh, now that's I have, important. I, exactly. So now I have a full three axis instead of a two axis autopilot. Nice. I love it. I love it. I love also that you understand three-axis autopilot doesn't mean that it has heading altitude and nav mode. Nav is not an <laughs> axis. <laughs> yeah, boy, back in my avionics days, yeah, I have a three-axis autopilot. Oh, you have a yaw damper. A what? No. Well, so I, I can't get past the, the why part on that much fuel, but yeah, it sounds like you need a, a number four. Yeah. Well, I was thinking the fuel pressure regulator, there's enough cushion in there that I think if you could do it finely enough, I think you could get the fuel pressure down to the point where it would be just beginning to lean each fuel injector before you force the engine to shut down. But you're also going to lose, if you lower the pressure, you're going to lose yeah, you're your, lose your fuel max flow and takeoff. Uh, takeoff. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Oh no! But it would be a. Oh no! It would be. It would have to be a, a cockpit controlled, uh, fuel regulator. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah, things just got really complicated. It sounds like a big change. Hey, yeah. yeah. I I got an idea. Let's come up with another project for James. <laughs> Something so to that, distract him. Yeah. <laughs> How about Behringer brakes or something? Do something. <laughs> well, aside from the facts that it was Rotax and I had no clue about anything, that was a great question. That was interesting. <laughs> yep, I learned something. Like, it used Level dongle. four dongles. Yeah. Level yeah. four dongles. Never thought I'd be saying that about airplanes. I wonder. I want. I wonder if there's a level five. Ooh, imagine what you could do with a level James, five. James oh, is man. already on the edge. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't be tempting him. <laughs> James, thanks for the call. That was a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> thanks for your help. All right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> yeah, such as it was. <laughs> yeah. So long. All right. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on another podcast. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? We always love to hear from our listeners. Please keep sending us your tricky questions to try to stump us. Your questions and comments can be emailed to podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see ya. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.